Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everyone. This is episode 122 of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast, and I am recording the intro a few days early on March 7th, 2022, because in about two days and six hours, I'm leaving for England, and I'm so excited. I am not only going to spend a few days in London with my family, but we are going to dare to drive on the other side of the road in our adventure to go to Stonehenge and Bath and Stratford-upon-Avon and Oxford, and then back to London. And of course, see Harry Potter, at least the studios, right? (laughs) We are going to have so much fun. It has morphed into this sort of thing because this is a good moment for my husband to take a vacation and I cannot wait. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And honestly, in all my travels, I spent a lot of years wanting always to go to a non-English speaking country. And when this trip finally got put together, I started realizing how excited I was like to the point where I couldn't sleep at night because I was so excited. And I realized, you know, wanting to go to England has never really left (laughs) my bucket list, even though as an adult, I sort of forgot about it. But as a kid, I always wanted to go. I subscribed to This England, which was a magazine back in the 90s. I don't know if it still exists, where I would just pour over images of England and For various reasons, I never got over there, but I'm going there now. Can you tell that I'm excited? (laughs) So I'm also excited to bring to you guys Victoria Strauss this week. She is a fantasy and historical novel writer. She writes for adults and young adults, but she's also one of the founders of Writer Beware. If you don't know what writerbeware.com is, you are going to find out a whole lot more in this interview, but you definitely should know about Writer Beware. It is a one-stop shop to check up on agents and publishers and scams and all the things that are going on in the publishing world. As she talks about, there's a lot of marketing scams now. And it is the place that you should go to do some research, to find out what are the trends, find out what you should be looking for so that you don't get sucked into spending money on things that are just a waste of your money. I know some of us always think that we're going to know these things. Like whenever somebody slips into my DMs on Instagram telling me that they'll review my book, if only I pay them $35, you think like, okay, yeah, that's not going to happen. But not all scams are that obvious. And in fact, I talked to her about back in 2001, being one of the very early people 
to be picked up by Publish America, which turns out is a vanity press. And I talk about it more in the interview, but at that time I was very young and I specifically looked it up as being, whether it was marked as a vanity press and it was not because it was quite new to the industry. And unfortunately, Publish America was a scam. (laughs) Uh, I'm very fortunate that I was very poor at the time and I did not buy any books. I think I bought 10. In fact, I, they were not very happy with me because I wouldn't, wouldn't buy more, but lots of people got scammed out of a lot of money. And we talk about that. So I bring to you one of my personal mistakes in this writing and publishing journey. As far as what is going on behind the scenes and all around me, I want to direct your attention a little bit to turning readers into writers podcast. There is a great episode right now talking about, you know, setting up your book proposal with Vanessa Soto. Emma does a great interview with her. And I've had a couple of requests from people through my newsletter asking about book proposal writing. And so this came at a really great time. So head over to wherever you're listening to this podcast and make sure that you check out episode 61 of Turning Readers into Writers with Emma Desi. And that one is Write Your Book Proposal with Vanessa Soto. In the creative writing community, we continue to meet every single week. We have what we are now calling writing sessions in order to not scare people away. (laughs) We have those eight to nine times a week. We have marketing sessions every Friday. And we are going to bring in a couple of published authors and editors in the coming weeks and have them come talk to us. It's going to be really, really, really exciting. If you don't really understand what the community is about, it is just a lot of authors, writers at all stages of life who want a place to talk about all the other steps that go along with it. We have a private Slack community. We talk about newsletters and websites and promotions and collaborations and how editors and what you should get in an editor and book covers. And there are a lot of things that go into it. What do you do when your book doesn't show up and all the different tools that we use, what we've tried to use and don't like. We have marketing sessions every Friday and we have people come in and talk to us about what they've learned, what services they might provide. And we always, you know, we're always learning and we're always able to point people in certain directions. You know, oh, I learned about this or ask a question about something else. It sort of brings the independent writing world, although we're not all indie writers. Some of us are traditionally published and it sort of makes that world smaller so that we can communicate and interact and feel heard, but also contribute in the creative writing community membership, you also get access to all of the writing session membership. And honestly, the writing session membership is separate if you want it to be. And we have a lot of fun there too. We always chat for about five minutes and then we write, 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 write. And because I have shown up, I personally host a little over half of the writing sessions. And then I show up to some of them that are hosted by different women in the group. I have 
now gotten 65,000 words written in my next novel. I am really excited. I actually checked that this morning. And, you know, despite all the other things that I do, the podcast, and there's a few children running around here somewhere. And at some point people ask if they can eat food. So I do that as well. And every once in a while I vacuum. So (laughs) I'm just kidding. So of all the things that I do, the writing sessions have really made sure that I get my novel written and I choose to spend time on it. Sometimes during writing sessions, I also get my newsletters done and things which is fine. You can write whatever you want. It is a time to come and write, but it has allowed me to say, okay, these are the hours that I'm writing today and really stick to them. And so as I go through this novel, I'm really starting to get into it. I am now at the point about two thirds of the way through and the protagonist has found out that his brother is kind of deceiving him and trying to trick him into committing to a situation. And of course he has all this, these certain conflicts. And now I'm, I'm trying to make a decision on how I'm going to make my hero really fall. (laughs) I'm just going to throw everything at him. You're remembering that this is a rough draft and things will change as, as we edit. Right. So in this time of writing, I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get to the end. I know what the end is going to bring, but I really have to start throwing a few more things at him. I've been very polite with the girlfriend and the girlfriend's about to be the person that we turn against. And so I have to find a really humiliating way for him to to find out certain things. So that's fun. You hear the smile in my voice, I'm sure, (laughs) because it's actually really fun fun writing. I do like writing the background, but I also really like writing the terrible things that will happen to the protagonist and then, you know, how they get themselves out of it. So this book is actually going to be a duology. So I'm, of course, as I'm writing it, I've never written a series or a duology. And this time as I'm writing it, I'm sort of thinking of the next book in the series and how his journey will continue to meet the love of his life, of course. And if you don't know, I started that book already and realized that the backstory to that book should really have its own book because I was just spending so much time writing backstory on, you know, the brother and the betrayal and all that. And I thought, well, you know, it really should have its own book. So that's where I am. I'm also starting to gather information about my historical novel that I want to write. And y'all, I am trying to remind myself that that research counts as part of the writing process, but I really do have a hard time having days in which nothing gets written. And so I'm almost like approaching writing that with apprehension because I know that I need to do a bit more research. I need to research Spain and England in the 1830s. And I, I just really like writing. I I'm so impatient. I always want to just get to the writing, but I want to have details in the book and I want to be accurate. So I actually, I don't mind reading, but there's something about not getting those words in every day. (laughs) I don't know. It's just this inner struggle that I have. I don't know if you're like that at all, that you sort of measure your 
success, I guess, or your daily success by a certain, certain measurement. And I think that I am a little too into measuring mine by word count. I'm just going to admit that, but things are going well. I'm quite pleased with myself. I did start out 2022 with the goal to finish four rough drafts this year. And I think that might happen. I really do. On the other hand, you know, it's nothing set in stone. There's no contract. So if things don't go as planned, then well, too bad. (laughs) I am beholding to nobody but myself, but it looks like I'm going to have at least two because this is, I'm two thirds of the way done. So as always, I encourage you to find a writing community, to find a place in which you can take your writing seriously and those around you take your writing seriously. Try to write every single day if possible. I usually take Sundays off, although this weekend I did not. We had a writing session on Saturday and then I wrote as well on Sunday because I'm going to London. Did I tell you I'm going to London? Did I tell you I'm excited about going to London? So that is my news for today. I will have tons of news about London. I don't know what I'm going to do to gather all the information, but you guys will probably have to bear with me on the whole London thing for a while. I'm just saying that's how excited I am. (laughs) So, so today, this week, I'm actually, as you're listening to this, I'm in London right now. And if you are excited as I am to listen to this episode with Victoria Strauss of Writer Beware, you should subscribe to Pencils and Lipstick. And you should think about becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash pencils underscore lipstick. You will get a shout out if you sign up for just $3 a month and all of the benefits sort of go up from there. And I am trying to spend a little bit more time over there on Patreon and to give you guys a little bit more. It's funny because writers don't really like to be on video. So a lot of them don't really want to do a video (laughs) interview because that was my idea. Like, oh, I'll do the video for the patrons. But if you would like to support the show, that would be wonderful. It can be a one-off. It can be monthly. It is what keeps this show going. Honestly, it takes some work. It is so much fun to do, but you becoming a patron obviously benefits and make sure that my editor stays caffeinated because she will be paid (laughs) and it makes sure I'm caffeinated, which is always a good thing that I come at you with energy. I will have all the links in the show notes for Victoria Strauss, um, victoriastrauss.com. You can find all of her books and writerbeware.com. You can make sure that you are up to date with the scams that are happening in the writer's world. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm very excited to have with me Victoria Strauss. She is a writer and she is also one of the founders of Writer Beware. So I'm very excited to be talking both about all of the publishing industry scams or not, and not just scams, the news, as well as the writing that Victoria does herself. Thank you, Victoria, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Um, You were personally requested by somebody. I (laughs) told you right before we started recording. I think as people get into the publishing industry and all that, they find your very big website writer beware. I think almost everyone in the indie space knows it. Um, But when I went in and looked at 
you, I realize that you are a writer as well. So will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you write, and then we'll talk about your journey. Uh, well, I have published nine novels. Um, I write for both adults and young adults. My most recent books are Passion Blue and Color Song, a historical duology for teens set in the mm. uh, Renaissance uh, in Venice okay. and uh, Milan. I had a lot of fun doing research. And um, my other books are fantasy. I have several fantasy novels for adults. Uh, the Burning Land and the Awakened City are the most recent of those. And I don't have any projects at the moment, but hopefully, hopefully I'll, I'll be working on something soon. Yeah, the, so the the Passion Blue duology is purely historical fiction. It's not speculative or anything. It's got a small fantasy element. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is it real? Is it not? But mostly, they're primarily they're historical fiction. That um, is really cool. I mean, you have a, a a carcass review on there, so the congratulations for that. And that <laughs> um, I will definitely have links in the show notes. That sounds like a not very tapped historical moment to write about. I don't know. I'm not very aware of that many people writing about the Renaissance in Venice. I, in the teen space, that's true. There are not a lot, a lot of books in that setting. What interested me uh, was, I mean, the books have an element of astrology and they're about a girl who has a talent for painting, but in the culture of the times, uh, that was not something that women could do. Okay. So it's about her struggle to follow her talent and find a way to be a painter in a world where uh, women's roles were very defined and limited. Mm -hmm. And the first book is set in a convent uh, because she's the illegitimate daughter of a nobleman. And when he dies, his wife sends her off to a convent to just kind of get rid of her. Mm -hmm. But as it happens, and this is actually based on a real historical person, there is a nun in the continent who runs a painting workshop. Oh, wow. And um, the, the heroine, Julia, is taken into the workshop and she discovers what's it, what it's like to really be a painter within this very uh, closed and female-centric setting. Yeah. And various things go wrong. And in the second book, she has to leave the convent, disguise herself as a boy, and run away to Venice, where she becomes an apprentice to a well-known painter. But I was interested in, in I was just, I've always loved Renaissance art. Mm -hmm. So it was a real treat to bring that into a book and research painting techniques time and you know just create this 
alternate world in a setting that I think is something people haven't seen before. Yeah. So that, that must have uh, required a lot of research. Did you start out kind of knowing a little bit about the Renaissance? I mean, how did you stumble across the story of this nun giving <laughs> painting glasses? I've always loved Renaissance art. And I've always been a historical buff, uh, a history yeah. buff. My first novel was a historical and I had this idea of a girl who has painting talent. And so I just started doing research and I discovered this nun in a painting workshop. Her name was Plautilla Nelly. And she did a painting of The Last Supper, which has recently been restored. And she's sort of along with other female painters of the Renaissance, she's kind of being restored to her rightful place and elevated from the obscurity into which female painters really had fallen. But I stumbled on her story quite by chance and uh, it really captured my imagination. And I thought it was so interesting that in a time when women really could not do much of anything within the convent, which I think, you know, when people think about a convent, they think of prison, they think of restrictions, they mm-hmm. think of uh, privation and, um, you know, religiosity. But in reality, there was a good deal of freedom for women in this convent setting because although, you know, the church was dominated by men, these convents were run by women. So within this restrictive setting, Plotilla Nelly was free to be a painter really just like her male contemporaries. And she was actually well-known time. Um, she received wow. commissions. Very little of her work survives. But, um, and, you know, historians weren't interested in, uh, you know, art historians weren't particularly interested in female artists. So she, along with others, really fell into obscurity. So there's a lot about her life that has been lost. But there was enough for me to do some research and kind of create my own version of workshop in this continent. That's really cool. I mean, I think even as her art comes out of obscurity, you're kind of helping us look at history a little bit differently. And I'm always amazed at how different history is from like the, the, historical textbooks that we get written for a specific genre or a classroom setting compared to, you know, just a history buff looking back and trying to bring to life other stories. And it's always a little bit different. (laughs) Yes. There's always a lot of people missing. It is. And when you're writing for uh, young adults, you well, for anyone, really, you when you're writing history, you have to kind of balance being authentic to the attitudes of the time, which is so different mm-hmm. from ours today, 
and creating characters that a contemporary reader will relate to. Right. So that's always a challenge in writing history. But, you know, I write both history and fantasy, and I think the two are very similar because although when you're writing history, you're writing about reality, it's not a reality you can directly experience. So as much research as you can do, you still have to fill in the gaps with your imagination, which is exactly the same thing with fantasy world building, where I also always do a lot of real world research. Right. Yeah, of course. And I I think there's nothing worse than building a fantasy world that where nothing is wrong, you know, or there's no struggle (laughs) whatsoever. And looking into history, you can find a whole lot of examples of struggle that you can then place into a fantasy world, you know, maybe with a twist or, I mean, now we have books where the, the females are at the top, you know, and it twists history mm-hmm. from men to female. I mean, it, it's great. It, knowing more history, I think, really enriches your ability to write, whether it's fantasy or historical fiction or contemporary, really. You're able to draw on different parallels and world build with more detail, I guess. Exactly. And you can also, in fantasy, you can explore real world issues like my two, my way of Arata duology, uh, The Burning Land and The Awakened City. Those are books for the adult market. I take a look at religious bias and prejudice and persecution, which, you know, is a very topical subject. Mm -hmm. But when you're exploring it in fantasy, you can kind of highlight it in a way that isn't bogged down by historical references and biases and things that people already know. So one of the things that attracts me to to fantasy is kind of that allegorical element that you can, that you can incorporate. Yeah. And people don't have, I mean, we all have our biases or whatever we grew up with, the things that we will defend, you know, automatically. And I think when you see it presented in fantasy, you're able to like shut that part down of your brain and maybe look at the world a little more critically in a sense that you might not be able to if it was presented true to the day with all the things, you know, all the names presented as things are yeah, exactly. in reality. <laughs> exactly right. I, that's why I, I love writing fantasy because yeah. it, it's, I wouldn't say it's easier than writing uh, historical novels but it does give you more scope for kind of creating, for, for controlling the world, which you write. Mm, yeah. But that said, if you do create a fantasy world, it needs to be internally consistent. Um, and one of the things that drives me crazy, especially about uh, movies, fantasy movies, is that they, they nearly always violate their own uh, world building principles for, you know, for the sake of plot. Yes. Nuts, <laughs> yes, for the sake of plot or or perhaps because they think 
they won't get good reviews on social media. <laughs> True. <laughs> I can't, I can't remember what we were watching the other day. And I just said that person would not do that because of what they set up in the beginning of this movie. And it just irked me. Yes. <laughs> it irks me too. <laughs> Because I think we're so much in this world. I just read a review on Inventing Anna. I don't know if you've seen oh, it. Oh, I have Netflix. seen it, yes. So I thought it was great storytelling because Shonda Rhimes is a great storyteller. You know, she does a great job of directing the, the show. And I read a review of somebody saying, Shonda Rhimes thinks this, you know, uses it as feminist or something because of what happens in the show. And I think we we're just living in that time where everyone accuses the creator of like believing exactly what their world believes or, you know, that they create in their book or their characters. <laughs> like, this isn't true. You yes. Know? I get uh, letters from readers who kind of make those kinds of assumptions. And sometimes it's flattering and sometimes it's not. You know, all my books deal in some sense with religion and religiosity uh, Mm because I think that's that's something that really holds up a mirror to humanity and human history. And I've gotten some very angry letters from people who accuse me of blasphemy and uh, or who take issue with. Um, some element of the book and accuse me of um, believing this or that. And you know, oh, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting. It is interesting. Maybe maybe then it it's just magnified by social media and getting getting things out there. Maybe it's always been like that, where people think you write exactly all the characters believe exactly as you believe. I, I just don't find that true. It would be so boring if we wrote characters and worlds that were only exactly how our worldview was. <laughs> That's right. And you know, if that were true, we would have so many serial killers running around. <laughs> that is a very fair point. <laughs> like, what is going on with all of those horror writers? <laughs> That's so true. Um, so when did you, you you started out in historical fiction and then you moved into fantasy fiction a bit? Is that how it went? Uh, yes. I wrote my first novel when I was 17. And I didn't, you know, have any ambitions to be a writer. I wanted an excuse to take a year off between high school and college. And my dad who was a very kind of, you must be engaged in useful work person <laughs> said, okay, you can take a year off, but you have to have a project. So I thought, oh, I'll write a novel. And my idea was I would write a couple of chapters, it wouldn't work out, and then I could just do what I wanted for the rest of the year. But, you know, I really was hooked and mm. it turned into a real novel. I had no writing experience before that. And then I just kind of set it aside. And my mother, who actually published a novel when she was in her 20s, said, you know, you have to at least try to get this published. So I sent it out to a few places and it landed on the desk of an editor who whose publisher was going out of business and she was transitioning to be an agent. 
So she was, she said, uh, look, represent this novel. And I was like, okay. Because <laughs> I had no idea. And at that point in my life, I knew, like so many young writers, I knew nothing about publishing. So yeah. if I had met up with a stammer, I might very well have gotten ripped off. But she did manage to sell it eventually to an editor who made me completely rewrite it. Mm. I had written it in third person. She made me rewrite it in first person, which... That's a lot of work. A lot of work, but I learned a huge amount from her. And then I wrote, uh, she, she was... She was very supportive, and she bought two more novels from me. One was a uh, straight-up fantasy. One was a fantasy historical mix. And by the time I finished the third one, I was feeling, you know, young adult was very different. This was back in the 1980s, which I mm-hmm. hate to say because I'm dating myself. <laughs> but one. YA was really different back then. It was much okay. more restrictive in what you could and couldn't write about. You know, it was not super hugely popular the way it is mm-hmm. now. You were supposed to read the classics, right? Right, and right, <laughs> right. And you know, there was a, there were there are wonderful writers from that time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, some of them were still writing. But it just was a very different market, and I was feeling constricted by it. Mm. So I decided to switch to the adult market. And, uh, you know, as much as I love historical fantasy, really, is my first love as a writer. So I wrote a duology, The Arm of the Stone and The Garden of the Stone, my agent was able to sell those for me. And I thought, you know, now I'm an adult novelist. I'm never going to look back. But, you know, with the transformation of the YA genre and um, just how open it is to different viewpoints and uh, different kinds of writing, I did eventually go back to it for uh, Passion Blue and Color Song. And, uh, you know, that was a wonderful experience to be doing YA again for a very different yeah. market and a very different audience than I had before. The, and did you continue in the traditional publishing? Uh, yes, I have only ever published traditionally. I've resold my books a few times. The, um, my uh, early YAs are with Open Road Media, which republishes backlist books. Okay. But I do have the rights to uh, my Stone Duology, and I am planning to self-publish that. You know, that's, that's uh, the world for writers. The options for writers are so much greater than they used to be. It's really, it's, it's in many ways, it's wonderful for writers now and in many in many ways in many of the same ways it is not a wonderful world for writers. <laughs> yes so it, it has changed significantly since I I guess stepped into the scene of really thinking that I would write and I guess that would be like 
2001. I finished the novel and um, was very excited about it and sent it out to a couple different, you know, queried around. I can't remember specifically uh, who I sent it to and got some, you know, form letters back and then uh, two very encouraging no thank yous, (laughs) you know, but with sort, sort of some suggestions, which when I then got an offer from something called Publish America, <laughs> I was very excited about it. And, you know, I had an inkling that things were changing, you know, that we did have the internet at that time for all of you very young people. listening. <laughs> so I was in the university, you know, checking this company out, had my stepdad look at the contract and all those things. As far as we knew, it was fine, right? But it wasn't fine. <laughs> it was not fine at all. It was pretty much that time when they would like be the Amazon for you. But how did they make their money? Basically by you buying the book, right? Because right. they didn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. By you buying the book and then increasingly over the years by extra services, like you pay us X right. amount, we'll publish you faster. Or we'll do this or that. And one of the ways they made money was by slapping huge shipping charges onto book orders. So if you ordered, uh, if you ordered your book with a special offer, this or that, you would get a discount on the book. The shipping charges would be enormous. Yes, and the shipping charges would go down the more hundreds of books you ordered. Yes, yes. I remember that. Oh, that is, that's a classic vanity publisher ploy. Yes. You order more. Well, when did you start Writers Beware before we get into this? Because Writers Beware is a website where we can sort of go and check, look people up. It's like a one-stop place to check on the industry, check on as much as as you can possibly keep up the the companies that show up. So what year did that start? Uh, We started in 1998. So you were definitely around when this was happening, 1997. Or 1998. 1998. Okay. So I was never scammed, uh, just purely by accident, really. But I, you know, when I, I first started to go online in a serious way in like 1997, 1998, mm-hmm. and uh, I was joining writers groups and I was seeing all these stories about featured literary agents, vanity publishers, and, you know, editing referral schemes and people just getting ripped off. And mm-hmm. I had no idea that anything like that existed and I got interested and around the same time I joined the science fiction and fantasy writers of America and they had a call for a volunteer to create a page of scam warnings on the uh, organization's website so I volunteered and I was introduced to Anne Crispin, who at that time was uh, was vice president, and she was looking into setting up a committee to investigate writing scams. So we okay. joined forces to create Writer Beware, which originally was just a website, but later evolved into a blog, a Facebook page, uh, social media presence, 
So we have a website at writeoverware.com, and that is devoted to information and warnings about various schemes and scams. Uh, we have a page on literary agents, editors, self-publishing, uh, vanity publishers. And the aim of the, of the website is really just to educate writers about what's out there, what they need to watch out for, how to identify bad practice. Okay. And to give them links to helpful online resources. The blog, which is, I think, what most people are familiar with, deals with all of those. Uh, it covers all of those issues in real time. So it's where we right. write about specific schemes and scams, publishing industry news and issues. And I like the weird stuff. There's a lot of weird stuff in around <laughs> publishing, weird ventures and strange people who operate bizarre scams. Uh, So I like to cover those as well. So the blog provides specific warnings about specific companies and issues. And then Facebook page, I post warnings and information and people, we can have conversations there. And then my own Twitter feed also is uh, is part of that. So, okay. oh, and last but not least, we have an email advice service, which is free. Yes. You can contact us at aware at sfwa.org. You can send a report about a scam that you got ripped off by. You can ask me, you can say, hey, I just got a request from this publisher. Are they legitimate? And I'll tell you if I've gotten complaints, okay. advice about the writing process, whatever. And does it deal mostly with science and fantasy no. fiction? Or? No, okay. we, are, uh, we deal with the entire range of genres, markets. We can be used by writers you know, in any English-speaking country, the first camps in the UK and Australia, and, uh, you know, anybody at any stage of their career or writing in any genre, we really want to be, we want to cover the whole world uh, and be useful to everybody. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for scammers or just, you know, tricky schemes, I guess, because when you write a book, you're so excited to get it published. Mm -hmm. So 2001 was when I got published America and that whole horrendous thing. And it went down in about 2008, didn't they? No, they didn't go down until 2017. No Um, way. Okay. And you got involved right at the very beginning when they weren't even as bad as they became. No, they got, yes. In the beginning, I had the same person. I noticed that, so to complete my story, I noticed, you know, went through the whole process, thought I knew what I was doing because I had been following a couple different people online and making sure Writer's Digest was around already at that point. And I knew about vanity presses. I knew about that, you know, but at 
20, I was very arrogant <laughs> thinking that I, you know, reading a few articles and I already knew what I was doing. And so I realized something was wrong when I very excitedly gave my book out and people came back and said, there's a lot of like formatting issues and spelling mistakes. And I, you know, wrote to my representative, my agent there, they got very defensive and said, that was your, your issue or something to have done it. Because you're sending in like a doc, you know, manuscript. And I started realizing, okay, there was no editing that happened this is a red flag. And eventually I realized something was going on around personally around 2008. I was telling you before we started recording, I got in with a group of people who we just kept demanding to get our rights back. And at first, like you said, they wanted $500 or something crazy like that, which I didn't have at the time. Um, And then eventually my husband said, it's, we might as well pay it to get your rights back. And, um, I technically got my rights back, but now that as, as I talk to him, I, I should probably check that contract. No, you, uh, you, whatever. <laughs> you have your rights back for two reasons. The uh, company is dead mm-hmm. and your contract well, that expired helps. like forever ago. Uh, yeah, seven years, right? Yeah, After seven years. Like occasionally it was 10 years, but most of the contract was for seven years. But when Publish America went out of business, it did it what a lot of scammers do. It just, it's like it closed the door and everybody ran away. And mm. there was no notification, uh, no contract terminations, nothing. They just closed the door and fled. And they did not terminate their Kindle account at Amazon. So there are a number still of published American books that are for sale in Kindle editions, even though the company is dead, you know, the contracts have long expired. Mm. And I often hear from authors who are in this situation, and the only thing that you can really do is to try and get Amazon to take them down by reporting copyright infringement. And Amazon has a form that you can use. But Amazon, are they very responsive? Uh, well, Amazon is Amazon. You know, sometimes yes, yes sometimes no. And there is not a lot of logic for, the, for either the yes or the no. But, you know, this is an example of mm-hmm. how bad publishers don't just damage writers, you know, at the time, uh, the damage can extend, you know, beyond the life of the company. Yeah, I didn't realize that they had lasted that long. And that's pretty sad because really, again, like it look, it's a contract that they send you, you know, and unless you're really into, I don't know, like, I guess reading on Writers Beware, you're just excited and it looks legitimate. I mean, it is a binding contract. That's one thing. It's definitely, but they don't do, you know, what a a normal publisher would do. And the, the other red flag that I got was when I went to the local bookstore and tried to get them to buy it and they were interested as a local writer. And then they came, they called me back and said, this is not a normal ISBN or barcode. 
we can't order this book. <laughs> That's a really big red flag. You know? Yeah. So are there things still going on like that? I mean, we're 20 years later. Is that kind of the, the scam that people should be looking out for more vanity presses or have things evolved into something else? It's always evolved. Um, mm. There are, you know, there, there really are two dangers for writers. One is the scams like public mm-hmm. America. And the other is just people who are offering, people who set up publishers or offer services that they're not qualified to provide. Uh, so yes. there is a lot of small, this is a real problem in the small press world where a lot of people with the best of intentions, but little experience or knowledge decide that, hey, I'm going to be a publisher because all I need is an account with KDP and some software and maybe some friends to help. And we can publish books and help writers get their work out into the world. And this can be well-intentioned, but, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to business so they get in trouble in various ways financial logistical post of their publication delays or royalty checks don't come in time and then they go out of business leaving writers high and dry uh, there are a lot of stories like that that i've written about on the writer Blair blog okay so you know when you're signing up with a publisher you really need to do some checking and some investigation, make sure it's been publishing books for a while. Uh, if it's brand new, you don't know if it's going to succeed. So it's not a good idea to hook up with a brand new publisher. Okay. Uh, you can always contact Writer Beware, and if I've gotten complaints, I'll let you know. And I'll also take a look at the publisher and give you an assessment. Mm. My assessments are pretty harsh for the mm. most part. But, but rightly so. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, a lot of times a seven-year contract or, or more or, or somebody's hard work. You know, yeah. Um, And, you know, often inexperienced publishers either wind up with bad contract language or they don't understand their own contract language. Okay. So, you know, it's kind of the Wild West out there uh, in the small press world. And if you add that to the actual scams, you know, because there are vanity publishers that charge inflated fees or disguise their fees. One of the ways that Publisher America was able to claim that it was not a vanity publisher was because it didn't charge enough for a fee. But its entire business model was built on pressuring writers to buy their own books. So even whether you're giving the publisher money up front or you're giving it money because you're buying a product or buying your own books, you're still paying to be published. And, yes. You know, that's a common exploitive technique. 
Yeah, and your your royalty checks would be off of what you buy yourself. Or, you know, another way, another sneaky technique is to withhold royalty payments until production costs are recouped. Uh, Yeah, I heard that one too. Fortunately, I had too much pride, I guess, to push a book. I stopped pushing it and I got really mean emails about how I wasn't pushing, I wasn't doing the marketing, and which isn't really in the contract, (laughs) you know, you're not supposed, they they didn't edit it. They were, they weren't putting it out to the bookstores. And I got some, some nasty letters about how I wasn't selling. I mean, my book wasn't selling because I wasn't pushing it, but because they wouldn't change the format of it, they wanted me to pay to change it, I guess. It had really weird formatting and I would, I, I refused to, to push it, but they wouldn't, their contract, I mean, once you sign it, you know, you're very excited you think that you're getting published, but it doesn't get, I'm pretty sure it doesn't get edited at all. So it's not, you know, it's not a product that unless you went and paid for editing outside of it, it's, it's still a rough draft. Technically it's not, it's nothing like you went through where the editor worked with you and said, Hey, I I can see with my experience that if you do it this way, the book will be, you know, a different right. thing. And then it all just goes downhill from there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and you know, there were stories at that point of a couple different self-published people who were going around to book fairs and selling all these books and, and making money from it. But of course, those are always very few and far between, but they're amplified so that you, you know, if I just yes. do this enough. Yeah, that was the, um, you, you really got involved very early not just in the life of Publish America, but in the transition to digital publishing. Okay. And I think Publish America was a, it was originally modeled on Ex Libris, which is now owned by Author Solutions, but at the time was an independent company. And it was the first kind of vanity publisher that was inexpensive, ex libris hmm. was, and used digital technology to produce books rather than doing print runs as the old-fashioned vanity publisher okay. did. So you could self-publish or vanity publish for a very small fee mm. using this digital technology, which was brand new at the time. And Publish America sort of modeled itself on that using digital technology, publishing very cheaply, but it called itself a publisher. It didn't identify itself as a self-publisher or a vanity press. And it told all these lies about being selective and mm-hmm. writing editing and all of that. So very, it's you know, very and, unfortunate. And at the time, there was really nothing else like it. There was a okay. bunch of old-fashioned print vanity publishers where you paid $10,000 and they printed a 1,000 books for you and sent you the boxes and they sat in your garage. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at the time when Publisher America started up, there was really nothing comparable. So it did, it did entrap a lot of people Yeah, because the information just wasn't out there that this is not okay. a legitimate way of publishing. However, it got on writer Blair's radar very 
early on, and we got complaints about it almost from the beginning. Okay, that's interesting. I do think that I I must have hooked up with the group that was complaining, most likely through Writer Beware. I was actually looking back on the on the blog. And I was like, I, this seems very familiar. I think this is the way I probably came to, to check if, if things were true, because of course you kind of want them to not be true, you know, of but course, all, of course. all and, indications. And that, you know, it, that's the, that's what these people do. They exploit writers' hopes and dreams and they rely on that excitement that you mentioned to sort of cloud judgment or to mm-hmm make people ignore their gut instincts because I hear all the time from people who say, you know, who are reporting uh, that they've been scammed. They said, they say, I had a feeling, but you yeah. know, it, it just, it was so exciting. And especially if you've been rejected a lot, all of mm-hmm. a sudden here's somebody who's validating uh, everything right. that you hope was true and and that is still that is still the way that's the way all scammers work. Right. So how how do you feel about these companies? I talked to a young woman a few years ago, and I don't think she took my advice, but it's up to her. Where it was only a couple hundred dollars, and this is what her mom kept pushing. Like it's only I think it was only like three hundred or four hundred dollars, and with that money, she was going to get you know a poster with her book cover. She was going to get her book cover. They were going to format it for her. And they said, you know, they had gone through and said, well, just getting a book cover would cost us this much. You know, and I told them, listen, you're not supposed to pay for this. You know, it's not technically like you're still an indie published author. You're not a traditionally published author. That was my opinion at the time. I wish I had remembered to send her to writer beware. So how do you feel about those industries that maybe they're not really claiming to be a publisher? They're like, but this is what you'll get. We'll do it all for you, kind of. You know, all these little things that you have to do as an indie publisher, they did not edit her book at all. <laughs> so that that's not something that they're doing. But they're, it's a it's a company, I wish I could remember the name, that's really like creating this culture around them too. They have like a, a book fair where their writers can come and, you know, interact with each other. So I don't know. It's been a few years if, if anything has been complained about, but how should people feel about approaching those kind of companies where you do pay upfront, but they, they're kind of selling it as like, yeah, but we're doing all these services for you. That sounds like it would fit into the assisted self-publishing space. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of companies in that space. So the appeal is that rather than doing it all yourself, like you have to do it, KDP and Taylor mm-hmm. Spark and Smashwords and Draft to Digital and the um, the low cost or free and reputable self publishing platforms. Mm-hmm. They these companies provide kind of a soup to nut service, so mm-hmm. you you don't have to DIY. They will do it all for you, right? And there are some that are honest. You know, they say we're not a publisher. Here are our fees. This is what we'll do for you. And if you want an edited version, you have to provide it yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want marketing, you have to provide it yourself. So they provide publishing packages 
Or that little, little, be kind of like book, yeah, um, kind of like book baby, right? Like, like book, book baby, baby does. or okay. book locker is uh, kind of another no frills uh, assisted self publishing. So there, you know, there are honest and reasonable businesses in that space, but there are also very predatory ones. Most of the author solutions imprints, Author House, A Universe, Trafford, and um, I'm blanking, but they have a Author Solutions has a bunch of different assisted self-publishing imprints. Those are very high priced. You do get what you pay for, but you're paying more for it than you necessarily need to. And where the real predation comes in is in the marketing services. And you should hear marketing in quotes because most of it is just junk. It's cheap to provide. It can be sold at a huge markup. Uh, and it's not very effective for book promotion, mm. uh, press releases, book videos, internet advertising, SEO optimization, things like that. Right. You know, they cost very little to provide and they can be sold for a lot of money. And for many of these assisted self-publishing services, these, this huge range of marketing is a major profit center. So it's aggressively uh, sold and pressured. If you sign on to publish your book, you get constant pressure to buy this, that, and the other thing. You know, Hollywood treatment, screenwriting, New York Times advertising. I mean, for thousands and thousands of dollars. So... Technically, it's not a scam because if you pay, you actually get it. Mm-hmm. But it's exploitive and predatory because it's the benefits are misrepresented and right. it costs much, much more than it's worth. And then, <laughs> and yet another layer of complexity, the past four years or so have seen a real explosion of uh, really scammy companies of this type that charge even bigger amounts of money, tell even bigger lies, and very often don't deliver at all. They just take money and run. Oh, my God. And um, a lot of these are based overseas. So, uh, and they aggressively solicit especially self-published writers with offers of services, um, marketing services, Hollywood book to screen, impersonate publishers and literary agents. Uh, they, They just do all kinds of scammery. And one of the giveaways is that their solicitations include really poor English because uh, it's being done by people for whom English is is a second language. I've been writing a lot of blog posts about these companies lately. So, you know, really you have the relatively honest self-publishing companies that provide a decent service. You have the more predatory ones that overcharge, and then you have the 
just stone scammers. Okay. Just, uh, and if they're overseas, are they harder than to sort of to go after, I guess? If you yeah. paid, and there's because, not much chance. Because they do, many of these companies do business under multiple names. Uh, In the Philippines, where most of them are based, they're doing business under yet other names. So, yeah, it's very hard to trace them back to the source. And I, I'd say most of the questions and complaints I get these days are about those scams. I recently did an article on Writer Unboxed, which is a great website for writers about solicitation scams. And if people want to look that up, it discusses the entire range of scams I'm seeing that you're likely to get out of blue solicitations for. Okay. And there are a lot of these companies that are very aggressively looking to recruit victims. So if you, especially if you're an indie writer, you're almost guaranteed to be solicited by one of these outfits. And they solicit you by email? Uh, by email, by phone call. Okay. And the thing to remember is that reputable literary agents and publishers do not generally reach out of the blue to writers that they're not already representing or contracting. So if you get a, an email that says, hi, I'm a literary agent, uh, somebody discovered your book and I'd like to represent you, it's almost guaranteed to be a scam. Mm. It's like the FBI would show up at your house if you had a warrant out for your arrest. <laughs> So we always have to look at these things like, I'm sure the first initial thought is like, oh, somebody found my book. And then you have to have more of a cool head when it comes to these things. And it, it's difficult because the, some of these scammers actually impersonate reputable people. So if Oh, wow. You, okay. Um, there's one that I'm getting, they send emails in the name of well-known producers and production companies, and they say, oh, we, we discovered your book, we'd love to turn it into a film, do you have a screenplay you can send us? And of course, most people won't, and the idea then is to refer the writer to the real scammer. Uh, who sells screenplay writing services for like $10,000. Okay. Oh, so, my goodness. Yeah. So the, <laughs> definitely <laughs> check, make sure that... And what, what's the best thing to do, to just delete it and not even answer? Or yeah. To spam? Yeah. Okay. Just, and, you know, if one of these outfits gets your email, you're, you'll probably hear from others also, and they can be insanely persistent. And, and, you know, they use spoofed phone numbers, so there's no way really to block them because it's going to be a different phone number every time. Oh, man. Technology is so great and so terrible at the same time. I know, isn't it? (laughs) Is there there anything else um, that you would advise both indie and traditionally published authors um, other than going to writerbeware.com because that is always some place that you can go to sort of check that out, become part of the Facebook group. 
and ask people personally, you know, get some advice. But as we wrap up, is there anything that you would advise writers these days after we come out of COVID? <laughs> Who knows what's going <laughs> All the schemes people have been plotting during COVID. <laughs> yeah, and I think COVID has to do something to do with how many scams are around now. I would say my one universal piece of advice is educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Be a knowledgeable writer. Don't try to just jump into the publishing process and learn on the fly. Take time out, do some research. There are good books on how to get published, how to self-publish. The more you know, the easier it will be. The more you understand about how things should work, the easier it will be to recognize when you're being approached by somebody who is not doing it right or who has bad business practices. Uh, Knowledge is your greatest ally and your best defense. Mm -hmm. I hear all the time from writers who say, uh, I'm really inexperienced, I'm new to the game, and have fallen into the clutches of one scam or another uh, because they didn't take the time to study up on the industry first. And even if your goal is self-publishing, you need to understand how publishing as a whole works. Because whether you publish traditionally or self-publish, you're going to be in the same distribution system. You're going to be using some of the same technologies. You're going to be encountering some of the same kinds of people and schemes and scams. So you really do need to be as knowledgeable as possible before you start trying to get published, not after. And I mean, don't query a publisher and get a contract and only then try to discover if the publisher is reputable. Research them ahead of time, spare yourself heartache and potential mistakes because even if you have a bad feeling about a publisher, if you have a contract in hand, it's still hard to say no to. Yes. Personally, <laughs> I have personally walked through that. And I think you're absolutely right, even if you're an indie author, because you will be approached to translate your books, just sign here, or we'll, we'll do your audio book, just sign here, or the movie thing. And just, exactly. and most likely, even as a, as an indie author, you might be hooked because you now realize how much work it is to both produce your book and market your book. And like the relief of, okay, somebody else can figure that out. I'll just sign on the dotted line. You definitely need to know how that works, <laughs> how it should work Very true. before you sign. So yes, definitely. We will have the links in the show notes because there is a lot of information on Writer Beware. Also check out Victoria Strauss's books. Um, especially if you like historical fiction, fantasy fiction, or historical fantasy. Thank you so much, Victoria, for spending your time with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? 
It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.